Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower King, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercame.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Talisman, Part 2, The Road of Trials, Chapters 14 through 19. Let's start the show. Back in our world, Jack travels from Angola, New York, to Cambridge, Ohio. He is haunted by the news that an earthquake happened in Angola around the time he jumped from the territories. After calling his mom and being disconnected by Sloat and buying a pair of shoes at the mall, Jack meets a blind busker who reminds him of Speedy Parker. This man gives Jack some advice before he is arrested. Jack runs into Morgan at a rest stop and has to go back to the territories. There he meets a shepherd named Wolf, who is a humanoid wolf creature. Morgan tracks Jack in the territories, and Jack, along with Wolf, jumps back to western Ohio. Jack, now sick, spends a few days in a locked shed while Wolf, under the power of a full moon, reveals his true nature. Crazy stuff. I should call out your subtle accent where you don't really pronounce the L in wolf. (laughs) And you say woof. Yeah. Woof, woof, because that's the noise he makes. That's why they're called that. Yes. (laughs) It's onomatopoeic. It's perfect. Woof, woof, woof. Jay, we are further along into the book, and there is some cool world building in this section, particularly around Wolf and how he fits into this whole world. Yeah, he seems to be some sort of werewolf. Uh, in fact, he that's exactly what we find out that he is. Yeah, and his powers are different, though, in our world versus the territories. Like, he's a lot more, he's more powerful in our world. He's much more the werewolf creature who can't control his emotions and, you know, rending garments and attacking creatures. Whereas in the territories, that seems to be a lessened effect. It's obviously something he has to be concerned about and keep away from the sheeps that he's normally a shepherd for, but it's not as intense as it is when he comes into to our world. And as Jack is going back and forth, he's discovering more things about the territories. And I thought that this was a nice little piece around Wolf. It's also the first character that Jack encounters in the territories who he befriends, who can share information. Mm. Wolf isn't the most talkative or intellectual character. He's not like a walking encyclopedia so that he can just info dump on on Jack about the territories are are such and such, right? right? But he can just through his actions and the things that he shows are important or or scary or or fun. Jack learns so much about this world, and therefore we do too. And a lot of it's pretty cool. Just the fact that there are werewolves, pretty neat. Yes. It helps that Wolf himself knew Jack's father. Yeah. So they have this instant connection or rapport because Wolf liked Phil Mm -hmm. and had a connection with him and is obviously saddened when he finds out that Phil has died. And that's part of the reason I think he becomes so close to Jack so quick. And vice versa. Right, right. It was really cool how one of Wolf's aspects is described as half of his intelligence was in his sense of smell 
and it is not exaggerating to suggest that Wolf's nose, always acute, had attained a condition of genius. And this was at a moment when he was starting to transform more and more closely to the full wolf mode that mm -hmm. he attains at the full moon. So this idea of intelligence being attached to a sense of smell and the level of genius is a wonderful way to describe this. I don't think I've ever encountered anybody talking about genius in the same breath as how well you can smell things. Right. But it must be true for people too, people who are trained you know, sommeliers or, or chefs or anybody who like works in perfumes, they, they probably have so finely tuned their sense of smell that they are, you know, smell geniuses. Yes. And of course, the downside of that is when Wolf comes to our world, there's this explosion of smells and scents that actually overwhelm him. Mm. Obviously, a lot of this is the pollution, whether that be noise pollution or smell pollution, the particles in the air, just every little thing. I was reminded a lot of Daredevil. Like that's one of the uh. ways that you know you can overwhelm Daredevil, right? Is having lots of different sounds because then all of a sudden his radar sense is thrown off and he's too much. But like you would say, Daredevil's a genius when it comes to his other senses, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I sort of got the sense like Wolf is a superhero in the same way that Daredevil is, except his is smell specifically and not necessarily sound and touch like daredevils. Right. This also gives us this otherness of Wolf mm -hmm. that really makes him an outcast in our world and really becomes a detriment to Jack right from the get-go. He wants to save Wolf, and that's why he brings him with him when he jumps away from the territories when Morgan Sloat has found Jack. But as soon as Wolf comes into our world, not only is he an odd-looking giant wolf-type creature, uh -huh. but he's also a, a big hindrance to Jack. Yes, Wolf is afraid of a lot of things. As you said, he's overwhelmed by his senses, and he also is just so unfamiliar with what's going on that um, all of the things that Jack has figured out that he has become reliant upon, like being able to hitchhike and tell a believable lie so that strangers will give him a ride a little bit further down the road. That all breaks down when Wolf is there, when Wolf just can't be devious. He, he can't say, sure, I'll just suck up whatever horrid smell is inside this vehicle and, and be okay with it. It's just not possible for him. This means that Jack is going to take even longer to get to his goal, and he's going to move from Sloat and the dangers behind him even less effectively. So Jack is, is really being pulled down by Wolf in a lot of ways. Not to mention the fact that once Wolf decides, or not decides, but once the full moon creeps up on them, the only thing that works out is to lock Jack away to keep him safe from Wolf in Wolf mode. Yeah. Which means they make zero progress. The, the, Jack is literally fixed in place in a small shed for th three days, I think? Three or four, yeah. Yeah. So no progress on, on that, that timeline there. <laughs> No, not at all. And it's interesting because Jack is trying to come up with the solution of like, how can I lock Wolf away? And is there any place strong enough to do it? And then Wolf comes to this, hey, I know what to do. It's because of the book that exists in the territories. It's not that we we lock the wolf away, but we put the sheep in the barn and that's mm -hmm. how we protect it. So I need to protect you, Jack. So you're going in the barn, which is a, a nice solution. And it's nice that Wolf came up with it, but it's also not a very practical one. In, in the long term, because 
Jack is basically starving and dehydrated after three days. And uh, they're, like you said, they're stuck in one place. And you would think that if they're going to go another month and have to run into this again, that it's got to be dangerous because I can't imagine that a real werewolf would be, it, it might be one thing in like Western Ohio where there's not a lot of people. Uh, but in other parts of the world, yes. it might. They're totally fine with werewolves in Ohio, but <laughs> Indiana, uh-uh. <laughs> but a lot of this, you know, we talked about how this is slowing things down because they have to deal with Wolf not wanting to hitchhike. Jack is getting sick because I think he feels better in the territories and even mm -hmm. he's starting to be affected by jumping back and forth between the world. And there's this time clock that's sort of ticking in in the background, like Jack is actually on a mission to go save his mother and all this is slowing him down. One of the things we have to ask is, is all this necessary? Like what part is Wolf playing here? Um, we're still on the section called the Road of Trial. So this is seems to be another trial along the way, but mm -hmm. we're getting far into the book and is adding a, a major character at this point and actually slowing down the story a good thing. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like it's not a good thing. The main impetus for Jack to begin his journey is the impending death of his mother, right? And then that is further accelerated by Sloat's pursuit. Mm. He wants to stop Jack at whatever he's doing, wherever he is. He's going to catch him and he's going to kill him. So Jack wants to get to the what is it he's seeking again? Oh, the talisman. The right? talisman. He, Jack wants to get to the talisman as fast as possible and then bring it back to his mother before she dies. Goal is very clear. And there's a vague but still ticking clock because she's clearly very sick. Yeah. We don't know if she has days, weeks, months, maybe years, but it doesn't seem like this is just take your time, Jack. You know, go whatever pace you wish. I feel like there's urgency. But then the story forgets there's urgency. So I, I kind of feel like it is contradicting itself that way. And it reminds me of a classic movie that everybody might be familiar with, Smokey and the Bandit, <laughs> which I realize has the exact same plot as this story. And, and Burt Reynolds is Jack in this story or is he Wolf? I think Burt Reynolds is Jack. Got it. And Iceman, the guy driving the truck played by Jerry Reed, he's, I think he's Wolf. And the talisman is Coors beer. Correct. Okay. I That's it. it. See, you're, you're totally on the it. nose right there. Got it. Jack and, or I'm sorry, the bandit and Iceman travel from Atlanta in the east, west to Texarkana in Texas to get the talisman, I mean Coors beer, load it on the truck and then get back to Atlanta within a certain fixed amount of time. And if they do, they will win $80,000, right? Which is saving Jack's mom, the $80,000. Which is saving Jack's mom. Perfect. That tracks, and I think that that works. The added complication that I think Smoking the Bandit covers that maybe the talisman doesn't is that the initial clock that we were given is Jack's mom is about to die. Yes. And so we need to cure her. But there's a second thing, which is, now Morgan Sloat is here. And at the beginning of the book, he seemed to think like Jack was at an annoyance, but if I work with the mother, I can get my company that way. Mm -hmm. But now he seems intent on just at first sight of Jack, I'm going to start blasting you with my lightning rod zapper. And 
which is not how lightning rods work, but okay. Yes. <laughs> but it seems like Jack's main concern now is not the clock of his mother dying, but not getting killed by Morgan. Mm-hmm. That seems more urgent at this point because he's not going to be able to do anything about his mom if he gets killed first. True. And that's why it seems a little odd that we've got these sort of dual clocks, this added complication of Morgan, and this whole side. Is it a side story with Wolf? It sort of seems like maybe it is. Yeah. Uh, And I really don't want to spend too much more time on criticisms of this book, but I think that there's a valid point to be made here that this book was definitely written as a young adult book. It clearly falls into the YA category. But I think part of the issue I'm having now is that it's too much Y and not quite enough A. Mm. I don't know if you agree, but one thing that I want that I thought is important to cover here is that I really like the character of Wolf. He might be the best part of the book. He's an awesome character. I love spending time with him on these pages, but he feels really derivative of Tom Cullen from The Stand. They are both big, strong men. They're kind and loyal to an extreme, and they're both even connected to the moon. M-O-O-N. Exactly. That's, that spells wolf. That spells wolf. moon. <laughs> that spells wolf. Right. And the, the YA nature of this book leans too far into the Y, not far enough into the A. And surprisingly, like Eyes of the Dragon, which was also a King YA book, in my opinion, did not suffer from this at all. I think it threaded that needle just right. And I think this is why I'm struggling with the book overall. Everything feels like King did it before, but better. Wolf is a watered-down Tom Cullen, as I just said. Mm. Um, although Wolf is a werewolf, which is really cool. <laughs> I, I can never downplay that enough. Werewolves, awesome. The stand would have been a lot cooler if Tom Cullen was a wolf, a werewolf. Yeah. If Tom Cullen transformed into a wolf, uh, that would have really made for a different book. <laughs> yeah. Um, Speedy Parker is, I think, kind of a simplified Dick Halloran. Mm. I loved the character of Dick Halloran in The Shining. Speedy Parker, so far at least, he's, he's no Dick Halloran. Morgan is an inept and less scary version of Flag, in my opinion. Or he's the Flag from the TV show, who is inept and less scary than the Flag of the book. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, at least he doesn't walk around telling people to stop breathing. <laughs> doing his little dance on the balcony. Uh-huh. I've already thought, in the last two seconds, I've already thought too much about the Stan TV show. Please tell me there's more that you've got about the talisman <laughs> instead. <laughs> and of course, we've just been talking about the ticking clock, but it doesn't feel like that clock is really forcing the pace of the story. And I kind of feel like I am personally applying more urgency to the plot than the characters in the story are. Yeah. I feel like, you know, Jack is tr- in real danger or Jack is <sighs> Jack is overcoming a true problem or challenge, but I don't feel like it ever he's never thinking about I have to keep moving. I have to move fast. I have to get going. It's more of, oh look, this is where I am now. Yeah. And that's where I think the book is losing me a little bit. Yeah, so I agree with just about everything you said there. And was this book specifically marketed or thought of as a YA book? I guess that's the one thing I'm not positive on. Because I know the Eyes of the Dragon was. I mean, he dedicated it to his daughter. I, I'm not disagreeing with you, and I don't know. I guess I don't know the if this was, in fact, supposed to be a YA book. 
I don't know for sure. Listeners, if you have information on this, write in at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com and share your thoughts. Yeah, because it definitely seems like it. You're right. And part of that is just, this is so much different from the other King books because it is a very, like you said, simplified derivative of a, a quest story. Mm-hmm. And it might be similar to Huck Finn in that way, where Tom Sawyer is definitely a kid's book, but Huck Finn is a little bit closer to an adult book, but still is somewhat of a YA book. So yeah, I agree with it. And I do think that that's part of the reason that we're both struggling with it is everything that you just said. Mm. In this section, we're introduced to that busker outside of the mall who Jack is convinced is speedy. And I wasn't exactly quite sure what the point of this was, because again, it's the same problem we had with Speedy earlier, right? Which is he's not specifically stating what Jack needs to do. He's hinting at the fact that Jack might be able to transfer between the worlds without his magic juice, Mm -hmm. because that's a big concern for Jack at this point, that I'm running out of juice. Am I going to be able to do it? Hey, some guys got the juice. Some guys don't got the juice. (laughs) Jack doesn't have the juice. But this whole piece just sort of doesn't seem to work again. Like, Speedy's interesting, but not that interesting. And again, King is sort of dwelling on this magical Negro trope of an older black man who's giving advice to to a young child. And I just don't know if it's working as well and if it's helping the story at all. Yeah, it feels a little bit like an Alice in Wonderland motif where Alice encounters various creatures and beings along her journey who aid or hinder her. But here, it's like King and Straub are just littering Jack's path with old black dudes. Mm. And it makes it harder to be on board with it. Yeah. Because of that, you know, I know maybe we should or shouldn't look at this through 2023 eyes because this that's not when this book was written. But still, I think that if, if this was a, a rabbit and a caterpillar and stuff like that, I wouldn't be thinking about the ethnicity of the, the busker. I could at least focus on how could this person be a magical representation of another person, but obviously not the same person. Yep. But they're not doing that. And I, we're in the wrong world. Like if we were in the territories, maybe it could have been a giant caterpillar or something like that. Right. But it's not we're here. But is it? I don't know. It's, it's on the edge of problematic. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe all the way past the yeah. edge, but... Especially when if you consider Wolf, as we talked a little bit about earlier, as sort of this other, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say Wolf plays the part of Jim in Huck Finn, right? Right. In Huck Finn, it's uh, an African-American ex-slave who mm-hmm. makes Huck's travels that much harder, right? He has to hide him throughout and can't be seen with him and has a lot more explaining to do when they're together in each other's presence. Exact same way Wolf is, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he has a hard time explaining Wolf. Wolf's wearing overalls, much like I think Jim is presented in, in in Huck Finn. And he's very much the other, where people are immediately looking at him and saying, he's different, he's odd, he's strange. Why is this young white boy traveling with him? And so, uh, yeah, it does seem like it's right on the edge of problematic, if not over the edge. I still am hanging on hope for this book, though. I am too. I'm not totally like... yeah checked out. I I am enjoying enough parts and pieces that I think maybe, I hope maybe, um, I have faith maybe that they will click together in a satisfying way as we turn a corner and suddenly this book will just snap into shape and I will 
regret all of the complaining I've done thus far. This will be the the King book that has a bad beginning and premise, but then ends up with a good, solid conclusion, as That's opposed the, to the uh, other way around. Straub influence, perhaps. Perhaps <laughs> he screws up. He screws up the beginnings. <laughs> all right. Well, let's uh, talk about some Dark Tower thinnies in this section. So I just mentioned Wolf's clothing, in addition to the overalls that he's wearing in the territories, when he comes into our world, his clothes change a little bit and he gets John Lennon glasses. But his clothes, his shirt specifically is a homespun shirt that had become a machine produced blue chambray that looked like an army navy surplus special. I, I swear, King only knows one type of shirt, blue chambray. I gotta get me a, a nice blue chambray shirt just to just to wear it and Pretend I'm Roland the Gunslinger. Yeah, I mean, and then get special contacts that make your eyes look bombardier blue. Of course, yeah. There's one thing that uh, your mention of the John Lennon style glasses. It seems like the switch from or the flip between the territories and our world. Um, it seemed to recognize that Wolf needed corrective lenses. <laughs> like he he didn't have 20/20 vision in the territories, and he didn't in in the in in our world. So it magically was aware of this and supplied him with those glasses. Right. So that's wonderful. I love that. But when he flips back, <laughs> he doesn't get to keep the glasses. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so like for the first time in his life, he gets to see clearly. And then you're like, nah, we, we, you were ignorant up to this point. Yeah. You didn't know any better. But now we're going to take that away. Yeah, that's going to be also, rough. Yeah. That's another thing that Wolf say. <laughs> Ruff. Ruff. <laughs> and also, if the territory flip gives you, magically gives you things you need, why doesn't it reset Jack's clothing to like non-busted up shoes? Yeah. And like clean clothes and maybe, a, you know, a, a satchel full of sandwiches. It's magic. It could do anything. Yeah, the good point. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe all those will be answered in Black House. Yes. We'll have to read the sequel, find out. Um, I only had one thinny, and it is the scene when Morgan Sloat is using his magic charm, which is sometimes called a lightning rod, I think, to force his way to flip into the territories. And the description, I would say, is a pretty spot-on description of what a thinny is that something was happening to the air. A patch of it about three feet off the ground was ripping and blistering, seeming to twist and pull at itself. Jack could see the western road through this patch of air, but the road seemed blurry and shimmery, as if seen through the heated, rippling air over an incinerator. Mm. Yeah. Yep. He's creating a thinny by force so that he can walk through it to another world. Absolutely. I think that that is a great description. The only thing it's missing is the weird sounds that the thinny makes, right? Mm. There were a lot of like pops and sizzles and zaps, so maybe <laughs> yeah. maybe that covered the the <laughs> sound. When Jack and Wolf are trying to hitch a ride, and Wolf starts to freak out, one of the guys who was stopped to pick them up just says, "I'm I've had enough. These two are crazies," and he takes off without picking them up. And Jack thinks if that man had a CB radio. He'd be on channel 19 right now, yelling for a cop, telling anyone and everyone that there are a couple of loonies trying to hitch a ride out of Arcanum, 
And I, I don't know if Channel 19 is the cop CB station or if it's 19 because it's Stephen King. And of course, it's Channel 19. I did a little bit of quick research on this. Channel 19 is generally used by truckers. Okay. And it's like the most common channel. And I think it's 19 and 17 or 19 and 18. Uh, one is for if you're going east-west, you use one. And if you're going north-south, you use the other. Yeah. And it is, those two channels are like in the, the center of the spectrum of the available channels. And therefore, they are generally the strongest and clearest signal. So 19 is uh, one of the most common. And like if you get one of those handheld ones from Radio Shack, yep. uh, if it only has one channel, it's going to be on 19. You're dating yourself there, Jay. I don't think Radio Shack <laughs> exists anymore, but neither does It does not. It hasn't existed in a long yeah. time. Now, when you say you did research, does that mean you watched Smokey and the Bandit? <laughs> in part. In part, that is uh, why I, I watched Smokey and the Bandit. Well, this book came out around the time that Smokey and the Bandit came out, and CBs were a massive <laughs> popular craze at the time. Yep. Not very many people remember this, even in my own family, but we had a board game called. 10-4, good buddy, in which you were a truck that had to go around a board and deliver your goods, and you couldn't get caught by the cops. And there was different cops that were on the board, and then there was also the the eye in the sky, which is a police helicopter. Nice. Big 70s game, CB radio. It had all the CB radio slang on the inside of the box. Pretty cool. On that note, Jay, I think it's time for some yucking it up. What do you got? Uh... Not horribly yucky, but very evocative. And that is when Sloat is in the territories using his lightning rod. The wet, sizzling zap of electricity again, seeming almost to part his hair. Again, it struck the other bank, this time vaporizing one of Wolf's cattle. No, Jack saw at least not utterly. The animal's legs were still there, mired in the mud like shake poles. As he watched, they began to sag tiredly outward in four different directions. It's very cartoonish. I wouldn't say it's very yucky, but this whole idea of like, the the sheep blows up and now there's just four legs standing there and they eventually all fall down. I thought it was evocative, maybe on the edge of yucking it up, but still pretty good. Was that some sort of like cow pun that the cow was vaporized, but not utterly? utterly? Yeah. Womp womp. <laughs> I do not have any yucking it ups. The grossest thing in this section of the book was definitely when the cows were all getting zapped apart and a lot of them got zapped apart and a lot of them got zapped in very creative ways, but you just covered it. So You could say that King and Straub were milking it for all it was worth. Womp womp. Dad jokes galore. <laughs> hey, if you want more dad jokes, you can become a patron. You could support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content such as bonus podcast episodes. Visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more. Sean, what's the scariest plant in all the forest? I don't know. What's the scariest plant in all the forest? Bamboo. <laughs> I'll be using that one on my kids later. <laughs> Jay, you're supposed to wait until we get into fun stuff to start your fun stuff. I, I just, I, I got ahead of myself. Sorry. Uh, fun stuff. Let's get into it. All right. Well, this is maybe very personal to me, but I lived in Buffalo for a while and I had family in Cleveland. So I did a lot of driving on the turnpike, I-90, between Buffalo and Cleveland. 
And I know personally the Angola rest stop in which Jack stops at one point. And it's it's this neat little rest stop because rather than being on the side of the highway, it's actually on the median between the westbound lane and the eastbound lane. And so cars could park on either side and then they cross the sky bridge over the turnpike to the Angola rest stop, which is, like I said, a giant building in the median there. So um, hopefully it's not destroyed like Jack thinks he's destroyed uh, an apartment building in Angola. I hope that the Angola rest stop is still there. Yes, because a rest stop is so much more important than an apartment, than a condo in, in Angola. But hey. Have you ever been to Angola proper? I think the rest stop might I be more not. important. <laughs> I will say the other thing that I found really fun in this section was all the Ohio geography being a Ohio native. This all seemed to track like Cambridge is on I-70 and so are the places as Jack is heading west on I-70. The one thing that I had a hard time sort of mapping is after Jack is in Angola, King or Straub says four days later, he had made it a lot further west and he was in Cambridge, Ohio. And in actuality, it's not that much further west. It's a whole hell of a lot south. Mm. And I was trying to map exactly how Jack was getting around. He wants to get to Illinois because that's where his friend lives. And I think he's thinking 70 is the most direct route. But he must have spent a lot of time going south because Angola to Cambridge is almost a direct southern piece. And he probably should have gone diagonal on 71. But now I'm getting way into the weeds here. But all the towns that he mentioned are are real ones and exist where they said they exist. So I was impressed by that. Strawber King had a Rand McNally out. Sure. And they clearly made up a few towns and probably will make up a few more along the way to just avoid too much verisimilitude. But for these, uh, I guess, major waypoints, it makes yep. sense to, to give Jack you know, a realistic path. Yeah. What do you got for fun stuff? I like this line about Wolf's sense of smell again. Um, it's, the room was small, dim, and dank. The smells in here were terrible. A poet, smelling what Wolf was smelling at that moment, might have called it the stink of sour dreams. Wolf was no poet. <laughs> <laughs> I love the stink of sour dreams, and I love that Wolf would have thought that with his genius sense of smell. Yes. But uh, never articulate that that way. Uh, my last fun stuff is just about how technology has changed in the 40 plus years since this book came out. Jack needs to make a phone call to his mother to let her know he's okay. And he says that there's no territory's version of Ma Bell advertising that a three minute call to the outposts after 5 p.m. costs only $5.83 plus tax. Rates might be higher on God Pounder's Eve and some other holidays. And just put me back when I had to make long distance phone call and it became a major source of your budget to figure out how am I going to make this phone call to my girlfriend who's outside of my area code. And it did cost like six bucks for three minutes of time. Like it was expensive back then. Yeah. Now yeah. we don't think anything of it. Yeah. You had to do the tricks like I will call and let it ring twice and then <laughs> hang up and you'll know it was me yeah. so that you never get charged for any of it. Right. Or, or I remember calling my mom to come pick me up at work and I'd make a collect call, it would be automated. You say, Sean, come pick me up at work. And <laughs> she wouldn't accept the collect call, but she knew what message I was trying to get across. Uh huh. Yep. All right. I think it's time for some other worlds than these, Jay. There are other worlds than these. 
you mind if I kick us off, Sean? Not at all. All right. Well, I'd like to talk about a fun movie called Smokey and the Bandit. Hey, I've yeah, heard I know of that movie. this is the third time <laughs> I've mentioned it in this episode, but hear me out. This movie came out in 1977. It starred Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, and Jerry Reed, and Jackie Gleason, and Paul Williams. In my opinion, Burt Reynolds is in peak form. He is hilarious. Sally Field was very close to the beginning of her career, and she was a revelation in it. Mm. And the smash em up high-speed pursuit is just pure fun. <laughs> uh, like so many cars fall into rivers, flip over onto highway medians, spin around in circles. It's just great. Um, Eastbound and Down is a hit. Like that song was written, you know, for this movie by Jerry Reed, and it was one of the biggest hits of his career. And it was a, you know, a big hit, just period, regardless of the movie. Within the movie, though, most of the the music that Reed either performs or writes, including Eastbound and Down, I think falters a little bit because it's a little too literal. Like mm. even Eastbound and Down, the first half of the movie, when they are heading west to Texas. The song lyrics change to Westbound and Down. And I'm like, yeah, I can't decide what I want more to fix the lyrics so that they never say Westbound and Down or leave it Eastbound and Down and not make sense to the direction that they're traveling. I guess they chose the first option yeah. and not the second. But anyway, it's a really fun movie. It holds up to this day. So I would say if you haven't seen Smokey and the Bandit, give it a shot. It's fun. I'm going to have to check that out. I'm assuming it's streaming somewhere. Perhaps it was on HBO Max. Part of the Criterion Collection, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, on Laserdisc. <laughs> nice. Nice. I want to make a, another quick side mention unrelated to Smokey and the Bandit, but sort of a, a sub other worlds than these. I have been listening to a podcast called Unspooled for many years now, and I really enjoy it. I just wanted to shout that out. It's hosted by Paul Shear. He's an actor and comedian that uh, many of our listeners, and Sean, you likely know, he was the creator and star of NTSF SDSUV, which was a parody of all of the CSI type shows. Yep. And this podcast is co-hosted with Amy Nicholson. So Paul is an actor and he has a lot of inside info. And Amy Nicholson is a movie critic. So the two of them get together and make uh, an episode about a different movie every week. They first started out doing the AFI Top 100. Mm -hmm. And then they said, okay, well, now what are all the movies that are so good? We would launch them into space so that aliens would understand the human condition. Then they started a different list and a different list. And so now it's like years and years in and everything they talk about is like a really good movie and they take deep dives. The most recent episode I listened to was they went back to talk about In Bruges with nice. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson. And that is a wonderful, wonderful movie, and they take a nice dive into that in, in their analysis. So uh, I also highly recommend the Unspooled podcast. Very nice. And obviously, if you haven't seen In Bruges, go see it. It's fantastic. Yeah. I am going to recommend Beef, which is a Netflix series that premiered in the last few months, starring Ali Wong and Stephen Yuen who are two people who get into a road rage incident oh. and things start to escalate both between the two of them as neither one of them will back down on saying that they were in the wrong when it comes to the road rage and it escalates into their personal lives 
and because of their personal lives, because of the things that have happened in their past and in their current life that is sort of exacerbating their the tension that lives within them both at the same time. And um, it starts out in one way and really goes in a lot of different directions and gets sort of weird and surreal by the end of it. It's 10 episodes. They're each about 30 minutes long. I haven't seen Ali Wong in a lot of stuff. I know my my wife has. I really like her stand-up. Okay, yeah. She's fantastic. It's Steven Yuen, I know from The Walking Dead, and he was in a movie I watched recently. Nope. He was in Nope, and he was also in that Haruki Murakami movie that you and I talked about. Oh, with the farmers? Burning, it was called. Not the farmers. No. But I think he was in a movie about farmers. Yes. Yes. That one, in fact, I think he got nominated for an award for that, Mm. the one you're talking about. Anyhow, he's fantastic. They're both fantastic. The side characters are good. The writing's good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty close in one of the the better shows I've seen recently. So that's Beef on Netflix. So that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Talisman, Part 3, A Collision of Worlds, Chapters 20 through 26. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Are you drunk? Deliberately saying, <laughs> are you drunk? No. You say talisman as opposed to talisman. I don't. You're saying like, come, Mister Taliman, Talimaimid Banana, right? I mean, like, rip Harry Belafonte. Yeah, talisman, ah. talisman. I'm sure all these pronunciations are correct. It's just, uh... I want to say that there's a character in some book I've read whose name is Talis. Like, hey, oh. talisman. Yeah, I, you're not saying like talisman. Yeah. You're saying talisman. Like his name's Spiderman, not Spiderman. <laughs> or Spider-Man. Spider-Man. It's not his last name like <laughs> Goldman. <laughs> He's a Spider-Man. That's right. Spider-Man. Talus-Man. Talus-Man. Let's not get off on a Gina Davis tangent. We'll be here all night. <laughs> what was the Gina Davis movie where she was like a pirate? It almost ended her career. Yeah. Her husband directed it. and. I literally just saw it. I want to say Swashbuckle Island, but that's not it. Gina Davis Pirate. Cutthroat Island. I was close. That's it. Cutthroat Island. Wasn't too far off, was I? You said Swashbuckle Island. That's pretty close. Cutthroat Island as a swashbuckling adventure starring Gina Davis. I mean, there you go. Yeah. Swashbuckling. It's in there. Can't swash a buckle and you can't buckle a swash. You can try. See, they have a beef between each other. That's why it's called. Oh, I see. So, so what you're saying is I should check this out because I haven't seen beef. Yeah, go for it. You might like right. it. It's what's for dinner. It's what's for dinner.